Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Before we kick off this episode of Headstrong, I want to talk to you about my series sponsor, Green Chef. Now, if you're anything like me, You are always on the go and rarely have time to even think about eating healthy, let alone going to the shop, picking out the right ingredients and then getting home and devoting loads of time to cooking these meals. Luckily, Green Chef are one step ahead. They deliver your ingredients and step-by-step recipe cards directly to your door, making it the easiest and most convenient way to keep healthy eating habits on track. Green Chef offers a wide variety of delicious recipes each week with options including keto, vegan, flexitarian, lower carb and vegetarian diets. Even better, all of these recipes contain one or more of your five a day. What an absolute bonus. Green Chef recipes are developed and approved by qualified nutritionists. So you can relax knowing that your meals align with your dietary needs and lifestyle. So get 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes with the code HEADSTRONG. That's HEADSTRONG for 40% off your first box and 20% off your next three boxes with Green Chef. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Headstrong Podcast. My name is Louis Strong and I talk to a number of individuals in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers. But notably, I want to learn what the word headstrong means to them and how their life has been shaped through various experiences. Joining me on this bonus episode is professional cyclist Luke Rowe. 
Cycling is an incredibly tough sport that requires extreme mental resilience. Luke is one tough cookie and he knows exactly what he's talking about. Having been road captain for the Ineos Grenadiers for the last few years, I really enjoyed chatting to Luke and it was really interesting to learn about the daily life of a cyclist, the intense training that they have to do and then being on the road so vigorously and away from their family. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with cyclist Luke Rowe. Luke, thank you very much for joining me on Headstrong. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, if I'm honest, I'm a bit of a broken man. We did seven hours on the bike today. Um, last day training camp in Mallorca. So I'm a bit oh, broken. Seven hours. My word. Yeah, it was grim. On, on December the 20th. Oh, no. No so, pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Well, that, that is the, the way of professional cycling, I suppose. Um, That's it. When he, so will you be coming home for Christmas now then? Yeah, I fly home tomorrow. Um, so I've got a wife and two excited boys back home. So um, yeah, head back tomorrow. And I bet they can't wait. Yeah, yeah. Well, a, three, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So the one-year-old has no clue, but the three-year-old <laughs> is, is buzzing. Yeah, absolutely. Now... This, this podcast is kind of rooted in mental health and well-being, um, but what I want to kind of talk about first is the start of your career in cycling. You know, we, we don't all dive in with um, crazy seven-hour boot camps, I'm sure. Um, when did it all start? What's your earliest memory of cycling? Well, it started at a very young age. Both my parents, um, like they met through cycling. Uh, my grandparents both cycled. So it's something, a sport that's been ingrained within the family. Um, so my earliest memory is probably, probably me and my brother got our first proper racing bikes. And that was for Christmas, actually. Um, purple Peugeots. I'm not sure why they went for purple, but they were <laughs> purple anyway. Um, I guess at the time I might have been, I might have been eight. Um, and it's just been a part of my life ever since. I mean, you're, as you say there, your family are well-rooted in the sport. Was there that hyper-competitive edge then with cycling, but also just any other activity with your brother? Do you know what? It was the polar opposite. Um, mm. It was always, it was never, it was just a bit of a pastime and a way to keep fit and a way, you know, for those who are into cycling, realise there's a massive social side to the sport. Um you know, a lot of, you know, stuff outside of the sport, meeting up. So as a kid, it was just a way of, um, like, a, like a youth club almost. There was never, you know, from my parents, we used to, we used to race as kids. There was never any um, pressure. It was more a case of, you know, you get in the minibus with, you know, 15 other kids. You go up, you have a laugh on the way up and you have a laugh on the way back. And what happens at the race is kind of irrelevant. It was always super relaxed and with my brother he was he was two years older and there was no competition actually we we raced you know between us we raced together sometimes and if he won or I won it was it was irrelevant we had that team mentality from a young mm. age as long as one of us won you know to try to win it didn't matter so yeah polar opposite really I mean it's a world that I'm not very familiar with like the the youth side of cycling is it very obvious from a young age who is likely to make it professionally? Or is it actually, because sometimes you can have late developers, like in a lot of other sports, you know, like rugby. Um, 
you know, people develop at different ages, but is it clear for, for a psych, from a cycling perspective? Um, I think the first thing I'd add to that is, like any professional sport, is such a small percentage make it to that level. So it was never something that I set out as a young age thinking, right, I want to be a professional cyclist. It was a dream. You know, of course I thought about it, but realistically I thought, you know, there wasn't many British professionals at that time. There was probably two, three in the world tour, the top tier of professional cycling. So, you know, two, three from the whole nation. It just seemed like such a a far-fetched dream. Um, but, I mean, going back to, yeah, the, the question, I think until you're 15, 16, anything you do before that is irrelevant. Like, you know, you're just, just a kid. And like you say with development, um, you know, some kids are 15 and, they got the body of a 12 year old. Some kids are 15. They got the body of a 20 year old. So mm. I think, you know, at that age, it's irrelevant, but certainly 15, 16, you get, you see guys and they, they really stand out. But nowadays you have to be really, really, really standing out to, to, you know, to make that jump and be a professional cyclist. Has, has kind of technology allowed people to become on an even more level playing field or is that not the case? No, I, I'd say, well, technology for me mm. has kind of hampered the sport. It used to be, you know, working class man sport, um, you know, grassroots, out for the club run on the weekend. Um, a lot more of a social scene to what it is now. I think now, you know, with, with technology brings, you know, devices that can record everything you're doing, um, power meters, heart rate monitors, all these devices and gizmos. And I've, and Get, with that, everyone could compare to each other. Where back in the day, it just used to be, you know, whoever won the race to the calf was the, was the best in the club run. You know, um, so I say it's made people be able to judge themselves, and and with that becomes more pressure. I think you know, oh, that so and so professional can do this power, I can do this power. How far off am I? Um, so it's kind of taken a step back in terms of the social scene around the sport, I feel, but like any sport technology will advance the sport and it's made the sport more professional and faster. It was almost like there was, it was a slightly romantic aspect of it pre kind of heart rate monitors and what counting your Watts and, and all that kind of jazz. Cause I was speaking to David Miller about it this morning as well, actually it's um, that's the word that he used a lot about uh, cycling pre any technology. It's romantic. How, how do you feel about that? I agree 100%. It used to be, you know, when I first started cycling, there was, on my handlebars, there was there was nothing. There wasn't even a, you know, a, a computer to track your distance. You just, if you went out at 10 o'clock and you come back at 4 o'clock, you say, you know, I've done six hours, where now it's mm. to the minute to the second, everything is recorded. And you say, you know, during the ride, I averaged this speed, this power, this heart rate. And I think a bit of the romance is gone because of, you know, it's, it's, it's almost become a bit of a maths game um, and everything is, you're easily held accountable for everything you do because it's there on a, you know, on a database, on a spreadsheet, um, you know, on graphs, everything is, is there for people to see, for coaches to see. Um, and and you, you, you judged a lot more where before it was, yeah, I'd say a bit more relaxed and a bit more, but well, a bit more old school, obviously. Yeah, sure. Now, before we, 
carry on talking about professional sport. I wanted to to know where education stood for you when you were growing up because you had this this dream, as you said, of becoming a professional sportsman. Where did the education fit in? Was that still something important to you and indeed your family? Or was it actually more of a byproduct and the cycling was first? So I turned full-time professional, uh, sorry, a full-time rider um, at 18. Prior to that, my parents said, and, and that's when I moved to Manchester on the Jeep Great Britain under 23 squad. And obviously if you're on that squad, you're full-time, you're funded. Mm. And you like, and you, you know, you devote your life to cycling. Prior to that, my parents said, "No way, you're going full time. You've got to do something." If it's so, I I had a crack at my levels, um, did my AS levels, and and sacked them off. And then I said, "Right, I want to go full time." And they said, "No, one more year, you have to do something." So I did um, a college degree in not college degree, a co- whatever. Uh, a college course to be a personal trainer, a PT. And actually it just, it was the best thing they could have done because, you know, to be full time off your own back without making a penny and kind of relying on my parents, mm. you know, it's, it's bullshit. It's not, it's not right. And I, I think I've got the same approach as a parent, you know, you've got to, you know, at least be able to support yourself at that age. So, and actually throughout, so I did that course throughout that year. Um, so that would have been 2008. Uh, and actually, it comes to the end of the course, and I had the date for the final exam, which you know I was going to pass easy. It was a bit of a joker's course, to be honest. It was quite a basic course. And I got the date for the course, and it, uh, it clashed with a race in Germany, a three-day, three or four-day stage race, riding for GB. So I was like, oh, shit, what am I going to do here? So I said to my parents, I, I went, come back from college. I said, listen, the college have agreed that I can take the test a week later. So I'm going to Germany and I can do the test. They said, all right, no worries. You can go to Germany. So I went to Germany, actually won the race. Uh, I come back home and then I had to break the news to my parents that I'd lied and uh, I, I just missed the final exam. So I never actually got my qualification for that. But um, I mean, it all, went, it all ended up right in the end. But looking back, that was you know, a stupid mistake to have done the whole year um, studying and not not get anything for it, not got the qualifications. So, yeah, I didn't get anything from it, but I want a bike race, so happy days. All's well that ends well, hey? <laughs> yeah, pretty, yeah, but stupid looking back, you know? No, of and course I get that. that. Any young guy in any sport, I'd say, you know, at least have something in your pocket as a backup. So for me, it could have been, right, I've got my AS levels, I've got a PT, um, you know, what's it called qualification if it all goes tits up with your sport you've got something to fall back on which i didn't luckily it ended up you know having it making a career out of it but i had nothing to fall back on and that's something i'd say to any young guy is have a have, have a plan b from a young age that's something that i will talk about actually as well uh for the end of a, a cycle a cyclist's career that's something that i definitely want to talk about as, as we get to the end of the podcast but let's go to the very start of then of your professional life then uh, as a cyclist. So let's first of all go with going to Manchester. You're 18. The excitement is there. It's a reality. Where are you mentally? As in, are you ready and willing to say, right, this is my life devoted to cycling and nothing else other than that? To be honest, when I look back, I, I wasn't 100% devoted to cycling. I was 
we we moved to Manchester. We moved to a place called Fallowfield, which was full of students. I was eighteen, um, and I don't feel I missed out on the uni experience. Really, we, we were there for the winter, and we were based in Italy in the summer. So for the winter, um, probably at the time, I thought I was ticking all the boxes and doing everything right, but I was a million miles off. I was, uh, yeah, go, going out quite a lot, and you know, you live with six, eight guy, six, eight, 18 year old, you're surrounded in nightclubs and pubs and whatever. Um, so, so probably in, in my mind, I thought I was, but actually I wasn't, a tr- I was far from a, a, a true professional. And then as, as, when we went out to Italy, it was a lot more, we were in a small, we were in a place called Corata, um, in Tuscany. We spent the summer there and then it was, there wasn't many distractions, you know, so I really did knuckle down. And at that point, you know, after I won a few races the first year, I thought, I, I thought, right, this, that's kind of the point where I thought, actually, this is a possibility. I've, I've moved to Europe. Well, sorry, I moved to, obviously UK is Europe, but I moved to you know, the heartland Europe where cycling was massive, ingrained in the culture, and I was succeeding. And that's the first time I really thought, do you know what, I, I could potentially make this. And that's, yeah, I did get my head down then. Then you knuckled down. So I spoke to David this morning and naturally his, he was involved in an era of cycling that seems somewhat tarnished now. But that would have been when, I mean, it was slightly before me growing up, but certainly would have been when you were growing up. As a fan of cycling when you were younger, what did it mean seeing all that develop? And that's a world that you wanted to get into. What, how did you feel about all that? It was... It was tough. It was strange, and especially to admire, like admire one individual, um, you know. And he was your hero. You'd have a poster of him on your wall. You'd buy his cycling kit. You'd ride around, and you'd call yourself that rider. And then he would be caught and went positive for drugs. As a kid, that's demoralising. And I was, yeah, I found it quite strange really um you know to admire someone and then realize well actually everything they ever achieved is is bullshit um but i think you just back then unfortunately and it's a terrible approach to take is you just kind of accepted it you you learned to accept that it was ingrained in the sport and you you got to a point where you thought you stop being naive and you started to be skeptical, which is, which is bad because you watch a race, someone crosses the line and the instant thing that goes to your mind is, yeah, but is he cheating? You know, any, any great achievement, any great win, any great performance, you, you begun to doubt everything, which is sad. And I think, you know, I'm lucky that I come into the sport. Um, the, the blood passport was introduced in, introduced in 2010 and since that you know it's become as far as i can see very very tough to beat the system so luckily i came in turned professional a couple of years after that so now and i've been part of you know five tour de france victories where i've trained with the the, the guy who won the tour and seen him in tenerife and an altitude camp and seen them devote their lives so i've got 100 percent you know, belief that the sport is now in a great place. Um, mm. But back in the day, it was, yeah, it was tough. And it just let, it just left you very skeptical of any, 
any great performance. Mm. No, I can imagine. Yeah, it would be just just uh, demoralizing, as you say, to actually have your hero at the time achieving all this greatness and then actually it, it be founded on nothing ultimately, which is a great disappointment. But alas, as you say, the sport is moving in a, in, in the great direction. When we, when we go look at, uh, let's look at a grand tour then, because this is something that I feel is not well documented necessarily in the media. And it's something that I'm really interested in. And I know that people listening would be interested in it. What's a typical day for you at a grand tour and i know that maybe that's evolved over the years over the last 10 years or so with the technology and different courses and routes and whatever does change things but what's a typical day for you and how long is it talk talk me through a routine i think the first thing you could say is a typical day is is long you know people see you race a stage and that stage could be anywhere from four to six hours really um, you know, an average of 180, 200K. And people see that on TV and they don't see anything else. And before that, so you wake up, breakfast, on, we've got a kitchen truck, so the, the one half is for the, the chefs to actually make the food and the other half is, you know, sit-down restaurant type thing. So we have breakfast on there. And then from there, you're straight on the bus and most time you got you got transferred to the start. So you're on the bus and you can have anywhere from an hour to three hours, really, on the bus to a start of the stage. You have a meeting on the bus, you sign on, you come back to the bus for half an hour or so, and then you start the stage. Then, stage, four to six hours, you come back. The first thing is, the priority is obviously food, filling the tank up for the next day and recovering from the day you've had. And then again, you've got a transfer, which can be anywhere from the same. And, you know, it could be 30 minutes, it could be one, two or three hours. So, you know, potentially for a day, there's days where you spend longer on the bus than you do on the bike, mm. um, which, you know, eats into recovery time and you're not in your bed. Um, so so you, have, you have that bus transfer, you're back at the hotel. And then all you have between that time and when you go to sleep, you have an hour massage and dinner. But that sometimes... Uh, you know, the Tour de France, I can be, you know, have a massage at half nine, finish at half 10. And you've been out of your hotel. And that's the first time you walk into your room, half 10 at night. And you leave your hotel, it can be eight o'clock in the morning. So from eight till 10.30 on a, on a bad day, if the transfers are long, you're out, you're out, you're on the move, you're, you're traveling, you're racing. So it's, it's long days. It's really long days. I mean, that's, me- that's mentally exhausting. And to accumulate that all into a cycling season, it's something that I want to talk about because you're on the road for an incredibly long time. And as you mentioned at the beginning, you've got your young family, who of course you want to be spending time with, but you are, your career involves you being on the road for a long period of time. So how do you c- cope and tackle with loneliness? Because I know, of course, you're allowed to see them and I know that you can FaceTime them, but h- how do you cope with that? I think that's one thing I've learned over the years is that this this sport is I think it's more a mental battle than a physical almost, which which sounds crazy. I think I think physically everyone can get to a good level, and there's a lot of guys on a similar um, trajectory, similar physical talent. But then 
you know, a grand tour, I think after, after a week, 10 days, everyone is, everyone's broken. Everyone's, everyone's shattered. Everyone's carrying a high volume of fatigue. And then it just becomes purely mental. It's who can, who can hurt themselves the most, who can continue day after day to push that pain to the maximum. And I think, you know, the last 10 days, certainly the last week of a grand tour is, is really purely a mental battle. And the second you doubt yourself, the second you think about not finishing the stage, the second you think about going home, you're already at home. It, it's game over. Um, with the loneliness side, I think we're lucky in our team that we've got a great bunch of boys. Mm. Um, you know, I've known some of my teammates for 20 years and we've grown up with them. So I think I'm lucky in that side. A lot of the staff and riders, we've got that British culture within our team. But of course, there's times where I, I miss a lot of things with my kids growing up. I miss, you might miss the first word, the first step, these milestones in life that are, are massive and you'll never get again and, and you'll miss them. And I think for me, that's, if you look at the sport, the whole package, everything, that's the hardest thing for me is, is knowing I'm missing things I'll never get back. And you got FaceTime, of course, but there's nothing like, there's nothing like giving your son a hug or, you know, giving, giving your, your wife a hug. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing like that. So FaceTime is a great tool, but it can't, you know, it can't replicate the real thing. So for me, that's, that's the hardest thing is time away from the family and the training's hard, the racing's hard, mental, physical battle. But for me, it's, it's that distant from the, from the family. And actually, what was it? I think it was 2015. I, I had a roommate, Ian Stannard, and we did pretty much an identical race schedule for the whole year. And he was always my roommate. And we worked out that I'd been in a room, sharing a room with him. I've spent more nights with him than I had with my wife. Which is mental, you know. I, I was I was with him more than my own wife, so um, that's how much time you're on the road. Lucky Ian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you talk about mentality there as well, and na- naturally, I need to ask you: What do you do personally that maintains your mentality? And what do you know? What do you? How do you train your mind over the years? How's it adapted this kind of this mental training? I think the first few years, you just in this bubble of excitement and you're in an adventure and you go to any race you're just happy to be there you're surrounded in you know you made that step up to a you know one of the best teams in the world or the best team in, in the world at cycling you're just in this you know whirlwind and then as the years go on you realize you start to doubt things and I'm like, what am I, I'm missing out on a lot but I, I keep rationalizing it in you know, I'm 31 years of age, say I retire in a couple more years or two more years or four more years, I'll be 35 and retired. And I, I just keep reminding myself of that. And I think, you know, the normal working man or woman goes to 55, 60. And I can, I can beat that by 20, 25 years. So I just keep rationalizing it in. I'm missing out on a lot now, but when the time comes when I stop, I'm going to reap them rewards and I'm going to be able to, you know, my kids will be, you know, five and three or six and four, whatever. And I'll, and I'll have so much more time with them then that in the long term, I win. I, I win that battle of, of time with my family and kids. And 
I just keep telling myself that and that's why I rationalize it. So your thoughts are actually more about um, the future, actually, as opposed to being in the there and the now and not quitting and not the sport itself, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, the here and now is, I think I've got to add that if the most important thing with the sport is you have to love it. And I think Mm. it's got to be your passion. It's it's got to excite you. It's got, you got to be goal driven. And the second you start to resent them things or you, you don't enjoy training or you don't enjoy racing, that there is no chance you can do it. No chance. It's not possible. The sport is too hard, too intense, too much time on the road. The second you don't enjoy it, stop. And the, you know, the second I didn't enjoy it, I'd stop the next day because, you know, I'm quite a realistic guy. I know what I can and can't do at the sport. I know I'm not going to be a superstar. I know I'm not going to make millions. I've never been money or financial financially driven. It's just been about passion and achieving things. So the second I didn't enjoy it, I'd stop the next day. So I think that's massive. And and you see guys, you know, 24, 28, 30, you know, they're on top of the world. They've got massive contracts and they say, I'm done. And from the outside, you say, what, what are you doing? You know, you're in a great team. You're winning races, you know, you're making coin and you stop, but this sport is too hard to do unless you love it. And, um, when I'm inside that and I see a guy make a decision to stop, I go completely get it, mate. You know where they are mentally, I guess. hundred percent. So speaking of that, the mental side of it still, then let's talk about preparation for individual races. Naturally, the one I want to talk about is Tour de France. Yeah. You've got seven under your belt. Now, you know what you're talking about. Um, but how does one prepare for something like that? Obviously, you know, you, your, your team, uh, your body is prepared. And like the program you're on now, um, you know, on the 20th of December, for example, you know, your, your body knows how to train it. But how do you prepare yourself up there for a three-week challenge like that? Is there anything, is. Is there anything you do in particular? To be honest, no. I think it's a, a tried and tested formula that I've, kind of nailed now um but there's two sides of it there's obviously the mental and physical side of it and the physical yeah. side of it you know that's down to you you've got to put in the work you've got to go in the camps you've got to do the races prior and you know last year for example i was on the start line and i knew i wasn't physically 100 percent, and that's a that's a shit feeling um and that was a few different reasons but i won't go into it um so physically you know you just got to do the work and when you're on the start line and you know you're 100% ready, there's no stone unturned, you know, you roll up sleeves, I'm ready to go. You've already got a tick in the box, massive tick in the box. And then mentally, I think it's just having that will to get to Paris. And, you know, as soon as you doubt it, or like yeah. I've said before, any shadow of a doubt that creeps into your mind and you let that fester, you're fucked. So I think you've got you to blank that out and just, I don't know, it's very cliche, but I always think, you know, the, the pain, the suffering, the hours, the long days, it is only 21 days, which sounds a lot, but it's only 21 days. And as soon as you get to Paris, when you roll onto that Champs-Élysées, you know, you see the Arc de Triomphe, there's no feeling like it. That, that feeling of, you know, accomplishment and 
you know, I, I think in the hard times, I just think of the end result and think I don't, I, I don't want to, and it's happened to me. I've ridden seven, uh, last year I didn't finish the Tour de France mm. and I got disqualified once on stage 17. So of the seven, I've made it to Paris five times and I just keep reminding myself of the end goal and how the, the two years I didn't make it, how shit it feels to watch your teammates and the rest of your competitors roll onto the Champs-Élysées when you're sat at home. You're down in the dumps. It's horrible. And I've been on both sides of it. I've been down the Champs-Élysées alongside the yellow jersey on top of the world and I've been at home in the slums feeling sorry for myself seeing other people doing it and I think I just keep reminding myself of you know which side of the coin do you want to be on yeah no, that makes total sense now let's look at uh, a specific day of the year which is upcoming Christmas Christmas day is that a day off for you or are you because I you always hear stories of this what are you doing I am not riding my bike 100% um, complete day off uh, we do, I do a big block now. I've been out here for uh, 15, 16 days. So it's been tough out here. And I'll be back on another training camp in January. So I've kind of got a 10-day window there where in between the two camps, um, of which I'll, I'll ride most days, but certainly not Christmas Day. I think that day is... For, for me, I'm a massive Christmas man. So that day is devoted to Good. my family. Um, and I think a lot of people who you know, we'll ride on Christmas day and post. And that meant, you know, I hear people say I train on Christmas day because I know my competitors aren't. Yeah. That's the, that's then, what I hear. Yeah. Absolute bollocks because, you know, we, we usually tend to train in like three day blocks, three days, recovery day, three days, recovery day. So if they're training on Christmas day, they're probably going to take the 26th off or the 24th off. And you just think, mate, it's just, it's just social media and it? it's um yeah yeah you know people want to sound like rocky but certainly for me it'll be a day off now that sounds about right now what i need to talk to you about is leadership because this is a, a role that you found yourself in and rightly so how what are the kind of the main responsibilities that you feel you have for your team because obviously you work with uh the management and obviously you talk to everybody but what are your core kind of values as the leader in the team? I think honesty is the one thing that I would put above anything else. Um, you know, it's a high, it's an intense environment. There's a lot to be achieved. You know, people uh, are going for the win in the Tour de France. People's livelihoods are at stake. Um, and I think honesty is the one thing that rises above everything else. Um, between riders with staff and uh, I can be quite blunt say it as it is you know any any issue I like to hit it head on which sometimes maybe isn't the best way but most of the time I think it is um, but for me it, it, you know this whole road captain thing that, that that gets associated with me I think it's it's something that sound it's a glorified term it's not something that you know, in football or rugby, if you're the captain, it's yeah, it's a badge of honour. You know, it's something, it's someone that people look up to. And in cycling, it's just a term used for basically a guy who's going to communicate. A guy who can communicate among, I've, you know, me and seven others are going to, you know, say we're on the start line of the Tour de France, and then you got 
you know, this big network of staff, directors in the car, you know, the principal, Dave Brailsford, whatever. And you've got this big fleet of people. And it, it's just the road captain say, my job is just to kind of speak to all these people and essentially just get the best out of each and every rider on that given day on the road. And then I guess on top of that, it would be, you know, if the director in the car, you know, we got radio communication with them and they call the shots and what they say we do. But in the heat of the moment, if something happens, you know, a snap at fingers, you know, a crash or there's crosswinds or a team is doing something and we got to react to it straight away and you, you haven't got that time to, oh, this, you know, get on the radio and say, this team's doing that, what should we do? And a snap decision needs to be made. That's where that'll fall on my shoulders. So, mm. you know, there is a bit of responsibility and um, I think sometimes making a decision quick, even if it's not quite the 100% correct decision, is the right thing to do. And so there has been times where I've made a decision and it's been wrong. And you get back on the bus and I think as long as you can accept you're wrong and I can walk on and I say, you know what, boys, that's on me. That was my fuck up. It happens. But as long as you get 99% of the calls right, then it's all good. So it, it is that added little bit of responsibility, but um, it's something I've developed over the years. Now, I know that you have, as we said, you've got friends in the team that you've had for years and there's there's a there's a plethora of uh, guys who are looking after you in the t- in the management team behind the scenes. But do you feel that responsibility off the bike as well? From a well-being sense, um, if you saw one of the guys down or maybe something wasn't quite right, would you feel a responsibility to go say something just as a friend or is this coming as a team captain or what? I think just as a person, it's yeah. just a, um, you know, without any title on it, I think it's, it's definitely something I do. Um, yeah. I thought I, 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 yeah. Yeah. I'd always, and I think it's important, you know, the whole mental health side of thing has only become really, you know, it's really surfaced and become, people have become a lot more transparent in recent years, really. It seemed to be a bit of, um, you know, macho, ego thing to kind of not say anything in years past but now you know i think we're in a better better level where people are happier to talk about things and definitely you know i've had teammates who are down in the dumps and you know guys who have suffered from depression and i think you know i'd like to think there's some whoever it is but i'd like to think that i'm someone who they could turn to Luckily, I can say, you know, I've never experienced anything, any form of depression, any form of anxiety or mental health issues. But that doesn't mean I can't be there for others who who maybe are struggling. And there has been cases of that in the past. And it's, you know, it's a tough world to be in. It's not all, you know, it's not all rainbows and unicorns. It's hmm. it's cutthroat. It's, just, it's yeah, tough. Yeah. You know, people get left out of races, selections, lack of form. And like I said, at the end of the day, this is a job. There's livelihoods. There's, depending on how good you are, there's, there's very big money to be made. And it's a high, it's an intense environment to be in. So, you know, the, them things, mental health, and people will struggle at times. It's, it's human. So I'd like to think, without putting any label on it as road cap or any of that, just as a one human to another, I'd, I'd like to think I can be there for any teammate or anyone going through through anything. So I'm not, I don't want to suggest that you experienced um, 
any form of anxieties yourself. But when you, yes, you missed out on two finishing two tours, but you've also suffered from injury that has led you to miss out on some races. What's that feeling like? Uh, not being able to fulfill your kind of, you know, your your role and seeing your pals, but your colleagues out there as well, um, getting to do the race and you're not able to do it. That was a very tough, what was it? Almost Please. a year, almost a year, really. Um, and, and I broke my leg and, and it was... Uh, I was led in bed. I said, how many, you know, how many breaks have I got? And he said, we got to 25 and we just stopped counting. You know, it was completely shattered. Everything from the shin down um, was just shattered. And I was led in the bed and the doctor did the operation come in and he said, Luke, do you want me to be brutally honest with you? I said, mate, just tell me how it is. And he said, you know, there's a good chance I'll never ride a bike again. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I led there in bed I haven't said this to many people. I led there in bed and I, you know, once he left, I just burst into tears. I said, oh, f- you know, fuck, I, you know, this is serious. But, but I just, two minutes after that, I just said, nah, that's not happening. And, and I think that's probably the most motivated and devoted to the sport and my rehab I've ever been in my career. I think I, Across the T, dotted the I's. I had a great group of people around me with the rehab. Uh, the team were absolutely phenomenal. They, you know, I had the best of the best in terms of the physio, you know, the machines, the technology, the surgeons. I had this amazing group of people around me who were a hundred percent. They were all in, and and I was all in. And I said, I, I'm not having that. I'm not accepting that. I'm going to get back to where I am, and I'm going to be better than I was before. And I think. I, I did, and I nailed that. And that was, I think, when when you're on the so when you get sidelined in a place like that, and you, I tried not to watch many races because it would piss me off. I, and the worst is when I'd watch a race and I would see my team, and I thought to myself, if I was there, I'd have done that slightly different, or I could have helped there, or I could have contributed. And I could have made a difference and I should have been there and I wasn't. And that was the hard times. When they were winning, I thought, okay, I didn't miss out on anything there. That's fine. They won. But when I seen things on TV and thought I should be there and I could have helped and I could have made a difference and I'm led here, that was when it was hard. But I tried not to watch too much racing and I just focused on on myself, get myself back. And uh, I, I would... I can honestly say I was 100% dedicated to, to doing that. No, no doubt, no doubt. I don't... Uh, what with, with some people, they would know, they'd hate to say the word, but do you regret that? As in, not, not literally the injury, but how, how it came, how, how it happened. Is that a regret of yours, or were you just actually, do you know what, it's part of life, it's happened, and the fact that you've recovered fully anyway, doesn't matter? Well, I think there's... Not many people actually know how it happened. So it happened on a stag do. And yeah. as soon as you say it happened on a stag do, there's an instant, people instantly paint their own picture of what happened. You mm. know, the instant, if someone said to me, I broke my leg on a stag do, the first thing you're going to think he was, you know, he's pissed off his head, swinging off a chandelier, doing something stupid, which it's not the case. Um, you know, I was whitewater rafting and it was in the morning, jumped into the water and I jumped into water that was too shallow. 
And I think it was, you know, if it hadn't, didn't happen on a stag do, it would just be a whitewater rafting yeah. incident. But because it happened on a stag do, you get like branded as, you know, typical stag do lad mentality, pissed up, broke his leg, which, which wasn't the case. But, you know, do I regret jumping into water that was too shallow? You know, of course you do. My leg exploded, like, of course. But I think, you know, I think in general in life, it's a fine balance and the sport is so hard and intense. The way you get them short wind. Like this was directly after the Tour de France. So it was, I had a break, went to the Tour de France. You know, we, we won the Tour de France and the next week this happened. So you're at the highest of highs and you're at the lowest of lows. And, you know, in, in a week, everything's turned upside down. So do I regret jumping into the water too shallow? Like, fuck, of course, yeah. Like, I, wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't do that again, but it's life. And yeah, you know, life is a roller coaster. It's not all, nothing's going to go smooth for, for your whole career. And, you know, every day you come across an obstacle. You, you never go, every hour you come across something that you do different or you'd like to change. But, you know, life's a roller coaster. So you previously mentioned as well that you're a massive Christmas man, which is uh, obviously awesome. But what? how do you unwind yourself as a professional cyclist? Because it's a long season. Yes, you, uh, you, every now and then you'll get a rest day, but what do you do to take time off and actually forget about cycling? I think obviously family time is important. I spoke about that, you know, at length already, really. Um, you know, a rest day, I'll try and not really hang out with cycling mates and just go do something with the family and just be in a whole new environment as opposed, you know, get out of that cycling bubble. Um, after that, I'm, I'm really into my ice hockey. I try and keep up to date with that. You know, my hometown is Cardiff, so I keep up to date with the Cardiff Devils and, you know, watch a lot of their games when I can, follow the NHL, Boston Bruins. Um, so I, I really, you know, follow that quite vigorously. So that that's a way to, you know, switch off and get involved in another sport. And, you know, I, I think it's important to switch off from cycling you know, on a rest day, if there's a bike race on, I'm probably not going to watch it because I just want to, even if my team's racing, I just want to kind of switch off from the bike. And actually, when I get back from training, like my wife has no clue about cycling. You know, I met <laughs> she, she had no clue about cycling. And I love that. I walk through the door, say, how's the ride? Yeah, it was good, thanks. And that's the end of cycling. We won't talk about it anymore. Um, so I think it's important just to have that kind of switch where you, right, I'm on the bike, I'm focused, no, I'm doing, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You get, you finish the ride, you get home and you don't talk or think about cycling. So I think it's just, uh, and I've got, I've got that ability to kind of switch it on and switch it off, which is nice. So uh, I'm going to ask you a couple of really quick cycling questions, then I'll, I'll, I'll wind, it, wind it up to an end. Who's the most fearless rider you ever raced with or against? Against Alberto Contador. Um Yeah, he was a pain in the ass to race against and credit to him for that. He would attack where you wouldn't expect anyone to attack. He would. He wasn't afraid of attacking with 100k to go where most guys would wait to the final climb. Um, yeah, he was a pain in the ass to ride against, but cre- credit to him. Yeah, I like that. That's cool. Uh, is, there, uh, is there a racer, past or present, that you would like to have raced in a team with? Another team as opposed to mine. 
Well, anyone, any, as in any individual past or present that you would like to have been part of a team with? Ah, right. Sorry. Uh, yeah, an easy one. Uh, Tom Boonen. I would love to have raced mm. a classics campaign with him. Um, and that quick step team, that mentality, how good, how successful and good they are in the classics. So to have ridden for, you know, quick step alongside Tom would be a match. Yeah, that would be the dream. Uh, and my final question that I ask every guest that comes on, what does the word headstrong mean to you? Headstrong. Um, never say, I guess, never say die mentality. Um, you know, to, to the end. Um, ruthless, relentless. I guess relentless is quite a good word. word. Always just never say die. Keep, keep plugging away. Um, yeah, just just a hard just a hard dude who just keeps plugging away and never say die, never quit. Spoken like a true professional athlete. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. No, um, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. And that's it for this episode with Luke Rowe on Headstrong. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I felt that it was very eye-opening and engaging about the cycling world. If you did enjoy it, share it with all your pals and indeed go subscribe so you do not miss out on any more Headstrong episodes. I will see you next week for another episode of Headstrong. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.